But order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps in the path of omniscience may lead to rise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Majushri, please accomplish this. Hey, good evening. Hi. So, um, anyone remember where we are this week? Know where we are? Where did we let, leave off? We were going to cover some of the Vipassana in the Dzogchen tradition. We didn't get to that article. Or do you want to skip that? Thank you so much. All right, Chris. Bingo. That's right. So, yeah, let's go through that and then uh, the other texts for tonight. And they all sort of link together nicely. Just briefly before that, so I introduced a (coughs) course plan for us last week, and uh, I started to feel a little guilty that that um, we haven't included any of the uh, Indian masters. And to do the to do the uh, Dudra, which is the Tibetan for collected topics, which is the bizarre name that they give to the. Uh, preliminary study that precedes the Abhidharma Kosha, which was in the book that I showed and uh, was the material that Rob and Amelia had studied. Um, that we've never done any text by Nagarjuna. And I was mon- wondering if. Uh, Maybe we should do a text by Nagarjuna for the next course, which would give us a taste for that and uh, probably help us understand why we need to go through the more uh, in-depth and longer-term preparation for studying such texts. Does anybody have any uh, reaction to that? Like, have you heard of Nagarjuna? Do you have any interest in reading one of his books? He was into snakes. I don't know if that does it for anybody. But there was yeah, something that does it for me. Snakes. snakes. Yeah. <laughs> You're in now. I'm in now. <laughs> I would say yes and yes to those two questions. Yeah, so that sort of struck me that you know, I sort of have like this guilt thing, you know of like not having ever done any Nagarjuna in our, in our courses for 18, 18 years now. And there's one that I've been wanting to, to do, which is uh, this book called um, Dispeller of Disputes in Sanskrit. It's Vigraha Vyavartani. And it, it looks to be a little more accessible than... Uh, the root verses, although the root verses on the middle way are like so famous that it's a little bit of a toss-up. 
but they're sort of opaque, you know? So if anybody, I just put that out there. If anybody has like any auspicious dreams over the next week or so, can you let me know? Deal. Okay, good. So uh, for those of us in the source book who have this wonderful spiral-bound set of papers, we're on page uh, 253. Wonderfully helpful. Those of you who are doing the digital are you able to locate that uh, reading from last week, or do you, does anyone need me to recirculate it? What was the name again? Sorry. It's Shamatun Vipassana in the Dzogchen tradition. Got it. Thanks. In my source book, Derek, that's on page 239. No way. I think. Oh, you might, have, you might have missed Nick's last week. That was the other text that we did last week. That's the one on the Indian tradition. Oh, yeah. But 253 is end notes on. In my, oh, I see, because we skipped some pages. How did I not know? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, there's some pages that are not numbered. Just to keep you on your toes. Just never gonna say it. That's right. Just keep it closed. Uh, let's see. Here it is. Anybody need it? Last chance. I have it on my screen. Okay, never mind. Okay, so cutting through to the substrate. And, and this, I'm going to go through the first half, and I thought it was quite good. Actually, only just the first few pages, so I think we'll just read through the whole thing. In today's fast-paced world, with so many demands on our time and so little leisure, it's understandable that we seek shortcuts to fulfill our desires. I know that doesn't apply to any of you guys, but he's talking about other people. Including the goal of spiritual liberation. If time and resources limit us to a daily practice <clears throat> punctuated by occasional retreats, common sense suggests that we should focus on the most profound methods available. That would be a good goal. A, a regular daily practice punctuated by week-long retreats, right? We should all be so lucky. Ideally, once once a year you do a week-long retreat. Okay? Deal? Are you going to do Maine this summer? It's happening. Maine is happening. I, I can't go this summer, unfortunately. But I'm sending my wife this summer as my representative <laughs> instead of me and uh, it's going to be great the, the focus is on the book by Trunk Burmish called Work, Sex and Money how can you beat that if time and resources limit us let's see um, consequently Theravada Buddhists tend to emphasize insight meditation boom 
Tibetan Buddhists focus on the practices of Vajrayana, including Dzogchen or the Great Perfection, but in our haste to ascend to the summits, the lofty summits of Buddhist meditation, we're prone to overlook the importance of establishing a base camp on the way up. In particular, many modern followers of Dzogchen have gotten the idea that on the fast track to enlightenment through Dzogchen, there's no need for the practices of shamatha and vipassana. Silly idea. All that is needed is open presence or simply resting and not doing. Nothing could be further from the truth. The necessary base for the effective practice of Dzogchen that is commonly neglected is the experience of the substrate consciousness. The meditative experience of this dimensional consciousness plays a crucial role in the practice of Dzogchen. This is indicated in the writings of Prahivajra, the first teacher of Dzogchen in our historical era, who summarized the Buddha's teachings in three points. So, uh, Prahivajra is the Sanskrit. People may be more familiar with his uh, Tibetanish name. Anybody know his Tibetan name? Is that Garab Dorje? Gary Dorje, that's right. More commonly known as Gar- Garab Dorje. Okay, so the three um, teachings. First, cut through to the very root of the substrate. Very interesting interpolations of these three words that strike to the heart. I've never seen them translated in this way or interpreted in this way, but cut through to the very root of the substrate. Second, investigate the source of samsara. And third, rest naturally in pristine awareness. Are you saying that these are supposed to be the same as the three vital points? You know, that's a great, that's, a, that's the big question. And being lazy and dull-witted as I am, I forgot to look at his reference. So let's take a second and I'll go do that. The book's right over here. Hold on. So it's Well Springs, page Cynthia, how do you spell <clears throat> Garab Dorje? G-A-R-A-B-D-O-R-J-E. I got the Dorje. Okay, it, it was G-A. Okay, word. Thank you. Yep. I mean, you know, there might be some other letters that, but those are the standard, you know, easy version. I'm sure that there's some hidden letters that Derek could probably fill in. <laughs> but no, that's what it's normally presented as. Thanks for being a show-off. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate it.
that's so weird. I thought I had the book, but I can't find it. <laughs> so, I, I mean, that, that's what it, it seems to be implying, but... I don't I wonder, know. To me, they don't look the same, but... No, they don't. Yeah. Mary really, Beth. Uh, the third is real. I mean, the, to me, the... Would the you normal... mind looking in the Z library online and see mm-hmm. if you can find this book? It's just Z library. And what's it called? Wellsprings of something? Yeah. It's probably in your history, right? Oh, this is something I, you think? Um, yeah, Mary Beth has it. Oh, 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 I see. Mary Beth. Do you mean in the archive or online? Online, that new site that, you found. Okay. That amazing site. Actually, I'm looking right now. Sorry for the delay here. Okay. Well, Springs, which is hyphenated. That's the name of the book? Yeah. Hmm. No, I don't have it. Okay, well, we'll have to we'll have to check back. Yeah, see if it's in the in the archive. Yeah, because it seems like it's a quite a variation from the standard way that it's talked about. It is, yeah. So, why don't you show off further? No, just kidding. But what? What don't you? What do they usually? Uh, I overheard you well, guys. Well, one way on. that yes. Well, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to show off. I'm just trying to make sense of it. And I hope what is it? What is it usually translated as? I, I, I don't have the exact, but normally what he has as the third would really be the first. And then the other two are really gaining, the second one is like gain confidence in that. And uh, I'm blanking on um, the third. I have, I have it right here, or at least uh, Diggo Kense's Primordial Version. Purity. Yeah, yeah, what does he say? He says, these constitute the three words that strike the vital point. Um, oh, wait, where is it? Recognizing one's nature is the view, deciding on one thing is the meditation, and having confidence in liberation is the action. Oops, yeah, I had the wrong, yeah, I got him in the wrong order, but that sounds like the norm. One more time, Eric, please. Uh, I need reading glasses. <laughs> recognizing, <laughs> one's, recognizing one's nature is the view. Deciding on one thing is the meditation, and having confidence in liberation is the action. Oh, it's right here, Mary Beth. Cool. So you found your one. Sounds easy. Yeah, I was spelling it with a hyphen. I don't know where I got that from. Mm. Oh, it's still downloading. Okay. Three thirty five. 
You guys with me, helping me out here? Ah. Oh. What's the reference to three, page 335? <laughs> Nobody's looking at the footnote page of the text. Yes. Thank you. Page 335. Hmm. There it is. Show the natural status contained within one's mind. Begin by scrutinizing. Investigate the root of samsaric existence means naturally entering. So he's commenting on by means of three summaries. The first, resolve absolutely that all phenomena of the world and beings are contained within the awakened mind of awareness. And then uh, Alan interprets that as being cutting through to the very root of uh, the substrate. So this is not the same text. What text is this? Interesting. Okay, oh, Sri Singha. So that comes later, right? Yeah. Interesting. It might be a text that he received from... Garb Dorje. Was he the one that was the direct recipient of the casket of jewels or whatever the heck it was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was. Okay, so then I guess he would be the one. Yeah, okay, well, I'll, I'll look into it and uh, I'll circulate that if you're interested. But anyway, this is his uh, re recapitulation of that presentation by Garb Dorje, which is different than the three statements that strike to the heart. The meaning of the substrate, so back to our text, is explored in the Vajra essence. And this is this <coughs> term text received by uh, Dujam Lingpa that Alan has translated and uh, received teachings on and translated the teachings by uh, Gyal Trull Rimshe. Uh, an eminent Nyingma master who's like 96 years old and still lives on the west coast of the United States and his commentary and then uh, Alan has written these books Stilling the Mind and uh, Fathoming the Mind as commentary on those among other things like this revealed to the eminent master Dujum Lingpo said to be an incarnation of Druk Pen Kieyu Chung Kye Uchung Lotsawa, one of the 25 disciples of Padmasambhava. And remember, if you're not one of the 25 disciples, forget about it. So anybody that's any, anybody is, a tw is one of the, uh, <coughs> linked to one of those disciples. And actually, was when I was the Karmapan, I asked him, I was serving the Karmapan, I asked him about all of you taking, studying uh, these courses. And he said that actually, Every one of you is uh, uh, an emanation of one of the 25 disciples of Padmasambhava. So, 
I'm in good company here. He said, except for me. And his subsequent incarnations included His Holiness Dujan Rimshe and the late, who was the late supreme head of the Enigma Order. The true substrate, he writes, is an immaterial space-like vacuity, i.e. emptiness, devoid of thought in which sensory mental appearances cease. This state is spontaneously accessed when one falls into deep dreamless sleep, when one faints and when one dies, but then one normally loses consciousness. However, it is possible to vividly experience the substrate by achieving the state of meditative quiescence or shamatha. If you study Vajrayana and practice Vajrayana, at some point you may come along this strange phrase called bringing death onto the path or purifying death. And and that's what this is referring to, is, is going into this experience that happens at death, and fainting, and deep sleep, and experiencing it consciously through meditation. That is, going to the directly to the substrate consciousness. And then he words this interestingly, from the substrate arises a radiant, clear state of awareness. Implied, there's the substrate, separate from the substrate consciousness. And that, so the consciousness is uh, conscious of the substrate. The substrate consciousness which illuminates all sensory and mental appearances. That Everything that arises in our world, in our experience, are sensory and mental appearances that have arisen from our substrate. So in this case, substrate consciousness would equate to Alaya Vijnana? Uh, the, that's correct. This is Alaya Vijnana. Thank you. And, but the other it thing is. he's talking about Alaya is then a deeper level is what he's saying? Is that right? That's right. The Alaya is the foundation. And then oh, yes. conscious, dualistic consciousness of that is the Alaya Vijnana. Dujam Lingpa describes the result of accessing the substrate by settling the mind in its natural state. You will become still in an unfluctuating state in which you experience joy like the warmth of a fire, luminosity like the dawn, and non-conceptuality like an ocean unmoved by waves. The three qualities of the substrate consciousness of bliss, luminosity, and non-thought. Yearning for this and believing in it, you will not be able to bear being separated from it and you will hold fast to it. That is called ordinary shamatha of the path. <clears throat> now the phrase ordinary shamatha of the path sounds like a, a sort of lowly experience, but it's, it's sort of a pejorative way of referring to the actual full accomplishment of shamatha, i.e. stage 10, but indicating that uh, it, that stage 10, that full experience of shamatha is still a mundane experience in that it's, it has not transcended the world of duality. Um, and if you achieve stability for a very long time, you will have achieved the critical feature of stability in your mind stream. While dwelling in Shamatha explains the ordinary mind of ascension being disappears, as it were, and roving thoughts vanish into the substrate along with oneself, others, and objects. Someone with an experience of acuity and luminosity who directs his attention inward may bring to a stop may bring a stop to all external appearances and come to a state in which she believes there are no appearances and no thoughts. Dujam Lingpa warns against the danger of mistaking this meditative state 
for pristine awareness, i.e. Um, um, non-dualistic uh, sort of enlightened awareness. By getting stuck here, one will not come to the, slight, the slightest bit closer to liberation, for this is an ethically neutral state in which the mental afflictions and obscurations are merely muted, but not eradicated at the root. Can I ask one question? I think there was one line that I didn't hear you read that says this experience of brilliance from which one dares not part is the substrate consciousness. So, that's right. So, but... Thank you for pointing out. I'm no. confused, though, because it seems like, again, in terms of clarifying what when he's talking about this Alaya Vijnana and when he's talking about the Alaya, which I'm assuming is another layer, but now he's, I thought he was talking about this experience as being the Alaya, but now he's referring to it as the Alaya Vijnana. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Well, he's talking about dualistic mind in that he's talking about experience. So experience indicates consciousness, indicates Alaya Vijnana. Okay. So this is the Alaya Vijnana, the experience okay, so we're of back the Alaya Vijnana. Okay. And the Vajra essence presents the entire path to enlightenment, beginning with the common and uncommon preliminary practices. So he's giving the contents of this text, followed by the practices of Shamatha Vipassana, then the classic stages of Vajrayana practice, i.e. creation and completion. And finally, the two stages of the great perfection, which are called triksha, cutting through, and uh, tugal, leaping over, or spontaneous uh, presence, or spontaneously perfected. Uh, the breakthrough, oh, here he goes, the breakthrough, triksha, and the direct crossing over, culminating in three levels of achievement of the rainbow body. <laughs> While insisting on the indispensability of dissolving the ordinary mind into the substrate consciousness by achieving shamatha, Dujam Lipa acknowledges that among unrefined people in this degenerate era, very few appear to have achieved more than fleeting stability. It is said that 13 of his disciples achieved rainbow body and a thousand achieved direct realization of pristine awareness. And that's really remarkable because... Uh, that many people achieving rainbow bodies really unusual. There's there's not that many people in Tibet in the history of Buddhism in Tibet that have achieved rainbow body. Many teachers, uh, sorry, uh, uh, though many teachers nowadays find reasons to de-emphasize shamatha. None has achieved comparable successes in leading their disciples to such higher states stages of realization. Returning to the writings of Prahivajra, once one has settled in this natural state of the mind, the first step is to investigate where the mind comes from, where it dwells in the present, and where it finally departs. By means of such vipassana or contemplative insight meditation, one realizes that the mind does not truly emerge from anywhere, is not located anywhere once it has arisen, and does not go anywhere when it vanishes. <clears throat> so, um, it's a little confusing because this practice of looking at where thoughts come from, dwell, and depart is also <clears throat> is also a shamatha practice. It's also presented as a shamatha practice. It's a very effective practice at uh, for neutralizing the uh, 
the capacity, the uh, attractive quality of thoughts and the tendency to cling to thoughts in one way or another, either by pushing them away or by following them. Uh, so it's also used for shamatha, but then um, there's a slight difference when it's used for uh, vipassana. Uh, having no shape, form, or color, it is a luminous emptiness that transcends every mental construct in this way. By means of Vipassana, one cuts through the substrate. It's hard to imagine how one could cut through the substrate without first experientially realizing it, which must be done through the practice of shamatha. So, uh, in my limited understanding of this, the difference between doing this and shamatha, that exercise of looking for the source uh, location and uh, destination of thoughts or the mind and doing it in Vipassana is that in shamatha one's doing it in order to um, experience the, um, the the nature of the mind. This is done in the practice of settling the mind in its natural state. And so one is doing it in order to um, use that the sort of um, still mind that is revealed when you look at those three features of thoughts. Whereas in Vipassana practice, one does it as a way of looking for the source of, of awareness. By turning awareness back on itself. Subtle difference. On this basis, again, with the practice of Vipassana, we investigate the root of shamatha by experientially seeking the location of ourself among mental states and processes, our body, sensory appearances, and the external environment. In this way, we discover that the I doesn't truly exist anywhere in the mind, sorry, the body, mind, or elsewhere, as we generally assume it does. Following the second stage of practice, i.e. Vipassana, we naturally enter the state of pristine awareness, effortlessly relaxing the mind in the very state of not finding, i.e. not finding the source or the I, without grasping onto the self or any other object. Such contemplative insight is said to have the potential to fully eradicate the deeply ingrained habitual tendency of grasping onto the self, but only when it is supported with the mental stability of shamatha. Otherwise, it remains a discursive intellectual exercise that is still helpful, obviously, but it doesn't have the capacity to sever the root of samsara. And so in our tradition, and as is common basically throughout the Tibetan tradition, shamatha and vipassana are practiced in uh, alternation. We say in union, but realistically it's more like alternation. Um, the indispensability of shamatha within the Dzogchen tradition is clearly stated by many of the great masters of Indian Tibet, but this leaves open the question of where such practice fits on the path. In the earth treasure, so there's different types of treasure texts. Treasure here is a translation of terma, and there's earth treasure, there's sky treasure, and there's mind treasure, and uh, called natural liberation revealed in the 14th century by Karma Lengpa. Padmasambhava presents the entire path to enlightenment in a sequence of practices beginning with meditations on the nature of suffering, the preciousness of human life and permanence, 
Uh, he left out karma, which would have completed the four reminders, but uh, taking refuge in bodhicitta, which is the essence of prostration practice, uh, the four measurables, which uh, ideally is included in prostration practice or precedes it, Vajrasattva meditation, mandala offering, prayers to the guru lineage, i.e. guru yoga, and those four are nundro, prostrations, Vajrasattva, Mandala, and Guru Yoga, and then receipt of the four empowerments, i.e. Abhishekha. With this foundation in the preliminary practices, he proceeds directly to Shamatha, presenting a series of practices, including settling the mind in its natural state. So all of those were preliminary practices, and then he presents Shamatha. And this is more the traditional Tibetan approach, which is why when Tibetans came over here early in the, the 70s and saw that Trungpa Rinpoche was having his students practice Shamatha and uh, what he called Vapashna right away, Tibetan teachers were very surprised. and were like, Oh, that's a very advanced practice. But he switched around the order. Um, let's see, presenting a series of practices, including settling the mind in its natural state, which was described previously. His presentation culminates with these quintessential instructions for the practice of shamatha without a sign, which is the third of the three stages of shamatha, shamatha with a concrete sign, con shamatha with a non-concrete or inner object, and then shamatha without a sign or without an object. Sign here is like some object or characteristic. Cast your gaze downward. Gently release your mind. And without having anything on which to meditate, gently release both your body and mind into their natural state. Release is similar to Alan's uh, repetition, repetitious um, instruction of relaxing. Having nothing on which to meditate and without any modification or adulteration, place your attention simply without wavering in its own natural state, its natural limpidity, its own character, just as it is. Remain in clarity and rest the mind so that it is loose and free. Alternate between observing who is concentrating inwardly and who is releasing. Alternate between observing who's concentrating inwardly and who is releasing. Um, if it is the mind, ask, what is that very agent that releases the mind and concentrates? What is it, the agent that concentrates the mind? Steadily observe yourself and then release again. By so doing, fine stability will arise and you will you may even identify awareness. So this is shamatha, this is not vipassana, and he's using that practice of looking for the mind, for the agent, but he's using it in a shamatha context of stabilizing the mind. And then he says if you do it uh, correctly, um, a fine stability will arise, i.e. shamatha, and through that you may even identify awareness, which is the beginning of Vipassana practice. On the basis of shamatha, identifying awareness, awareness of that stability. 
Padmasambhava concludes his explanation of the nature and significance of shamatha for the practice of Dzogchen as follows. Flawless shamatha is like an oil lamp that is unmoved by the wind. Wherever the awareness is placed, it is unwaveringly present. Awareness is vividly clear without being sullied by laxity, lethargy, or dimness. Wherever the awareness is directed, it is steady and sharply pointed and unmoved by aventitious thoughts. It is straight. Uh, thus, a flawless meditative state arises in one's mind stream, and until this happens, it's important that the mind is saddled, settled in its natural state. These teachings on Shamatha are followed by Padmasambhava's instructions on Vipassana, dream yoga, the breakthrough, i.e. treksha, transfer of consciousness, powa, the direct crossing over, togel, and then practices for gaining a fortunate rebirth from within the, the intermediate state these famous teachings on the bardo. Clearly, he considered shama to be a necessary foundation for these more advanced practices. <clears throat> the treasure revealer, Larab Lingpa, so another one in the lineage of Dujum Lingpa that he has studied and received teachings on and has translated and refers to, similarly highlights the importance of shamatha in his oral commentary to the profound heart essence of the great Chitsan Vimala Mitra, which consists of three parts, the preliminaries to the profound practical instruction of the main practice and the concluding instructions. The preliminaries, once one has made the mind stream a suitable vessel, are of two kinds, the common consisting of the sevenfold mind training. Now this is not the sevenfold mind training of Atisha. As you'll see, in the uncommon preliminaries consisting of these five special accumulations and purifications, which is the nundro in the Nyingma tradition, it's counted as five. They separate, uh, taking refuge in bodhicitta. Tertan Lerablingba comments the sevenfold methods of training the mind are the indispensable crown jewel of all spiritual people and do not pertain solely to this practice. In other words, if you're going to do nundro, it's uh, it's, it's quite a good selling point to do the Kagyu Nojo because you only have to do four hundreds, thousands instead of five hundred thousands. Uh, so here are the seven impermanents. Uh, the way even the pleasures of samsara causes leading to unhappiness, i.e. suffering. The way there's no closure no matter how much we strive for favorable circumstances in samsara, i.e. this, um, I guess that would be uh, karma, maybe? The futility of all in good uh, and bad illusory pursuits, maybe that's karma. And the benefits of liberation and the importance of the Guru's practical instructions. And then the crucial way to maintain the mind in its natural state, i.e. shamatha. So the seventh of these methods concern the cultivation of shamatha, which is presented here in full. Simply hearing your spiritual mentor's practical instructions and knowing how to explain them to others does not liberate your own mind stream. Case in point, so you must meditate even if you spend your whole life practicing a mere semblance of meditation, meditating in a stupor, cluttering the mind with fantasies and taking many breaks during your sessions due to be unable, being unable to control mental scattering. Pretty familiar, at least to me. No experiences or realizations will arise. So it is important during each session to meditate according to your mentor's oral instructions. In solitude, sit upright on a comfortable cushion. 
gently hold the pot breath. <laughs> so it's nothing to do with ma medical marijuana or any other type of marijuana. This has to do with uh, a special type of uh, tantric breathing called, uh, usually translated as vase breathing. And uh, it, it entails puffing out your tummy so that it, your belly looks like a, a pot or a vase, the belly of a vase. And uh, I can't explain the rest of it to you at this point. Um, until the vital energies converge naturally. Interesting preliminary practice, holding the vase breath until the energies converge. Converge where, you might ask. That's the question. Think about that. Let your gaze be vacant. With your body and mind inwardly relaxed and without allowing the continuum of your consciousness to fade from a state of limpidity and vivid clarity, or clarity, sustain it naturally and radiantly. Do not clutter your mind with many critical judgments. Do not take a short-sighted view of meditation and avoid great hopes and fears that your meditation will turn out one way or not another. In the beginning, have many daily sessions, each of them of brief duration, and focus well on each one. Whenever you meditate, bear in mind the phrase, without distraction and without grasping. Sometimes this is placed, uh, called not wandering and not manipulating. Not, um, not manipulating, what is it called? Not uh, contriving or something. And put this into practice. As you gradually familiarize yourself with the meditation, increase the duration of your sessions. If dullness sets in, arouse your awareness of their excessive scattering and excitation. Loosen up. Determine in terms of your own experience the optimal degree of mental arousal as well as the healthiest diet and behavior. Excessive imprisoning, constriction of the mind, loss of clarity due to lassitude and excessive relaxation resulting in involuntary vocalization and eye movement are to be avoided. Now, we don't usually like vocalize during meditation practice, but um, apparently I guess Tibetans like start, you know, talking during practice or mumbling, mumbling, saying things. They also don't have, like, the average Tibetan did not have access to, like, the ability to, like, take notes of things, like, to do later. Um, you know, like, they didn't have paper. It was not that uh, common for Tibetans, nor pens. So, anyway. Um, If it only uh, it does only harm to talk a lot about such things as extrasensory perception and random dreams, or, or to claim, I saw a deity, I saw a ghost, I know this, I've realized that, and so on. So if you see any of those, not, you're not supposed to talk about them. The presence or absence of any kind of pleasure or displeasure, such as a sensation of motion, is not uniform. For there are great differences in the dispositions and faculties from one individual to another. In other words, all sorts of different experiences and unusual experiences may arise when you actually practice intensively. 
Due to maintaining the mind in its natural state, there may arise sensations such as physical and mental bliss, the sense of lucid consciousness, the appearance of empty forms, and a non-conceptual sense that nothing can harm the mind regardless of whether or not thoughts have ceased. Whatever kinds of mental events occur, be they gentle or violent, subtle or gross, of long or short duration, short or weak, good or bad, observe their nature and avoid any obsessive evaluation of them as being one thing and not another. Let the heart of your practice be consciousness in its natural state, limpid and vivid, acting as your own mentor, if you can bring the essential points to perfection as if you were threading a needle. The afflictions of your own mind stream will subside, you will gain the autonomy of not succumbing to them, and your mind will constantly be calm and composed. This is a sound basis for the arising of all samadhis, of the stages of generation and completion, which are the two stages of uh, Vaj uh, traditional Vajrayana practice. <clears throat> this is like tilling the soil of a field, so from the outside avoid making a lot of great, exalted, and pointless proclamations. Rather, it's crucial to do all you can to uh, re refine your mind and establish a foundation for contemplative practice. Immediately following the teachings on the seven common preliminaries, Lara Blinkpa teaches the uncommon ones, going for refuge, cultivation, bodhicitta, purifying observations, to practice of Vajrasaf, accumulate merit by mandala, and guru yoga. Finally, the main practice consists of the stages of generation and completion, followed by the two phases of Dzogchen, namely the breakthrough and the direct crossing over. Sounds repetitive. In this way, he emphasized the importance of achieving shamatha by settling mind, natural state, and essential foundation for all Vajrayana practices, including Dzogchen. <laughs> Without achieving uh, such an experience of stable and vivid samadhi through the achievement of shamatha, we may catch fleeting glimpses of pristine awareness, but we are unlikely to sustain it or be able to sustain it or readily access it again. Consequently, such breakthrough experiences may soon disappear, leading only a fading memory and a lingering sense of nostalgia, painful nostalgia. So these are like, the, this is uh, reminiscent of the analogy of the fading mist or the patch that wears off, which is how these uh, temporary experiences are sometimes char categorized, characterized as well, uh, traditionally as well as by Trungpa Rinpoche. According to these eminent Dzogchen masters, the authentic path of the great perfection requires that we f first dissolve our ordinary mind, meaning in the substrate and physical senses into the, oh, here it is, into the substrate consciousness through the practice of shamatha, such that all appearances vanish into the substrate. This is like a base camp. Finally, we ascend to the summit of pristine awareness, realizing the ultimate ground of all phenomena, the ultimate nature of our mind. There may be no shortcut to the great perfection, but this is the direct path to spiritual awakening. Felt like that was duplication somehow, but anyway. So that's that one, and now we dive into a, f a few of the source texts themselves. And the first is on source book page two sixty five, and was circulated for this week, and it's called uh, "Quiescence from Natural Liberation." Uh, 
folks, okay, have have that one. Settling the body, speech, and mind in their natural states for the practice of the instructions on the transitional process of living, i.e. practical instructions that are like a dove entering its nest, which are for cutting through outer and inner superimpositions. Superimpositions are conceptual projections. There's an establishment of the foundation consciousness, Alivajnana, and the first of three parts is the settling of the body in its natural state. So here we have, this is by, or at least attributed to Padmasambhava. This is from a terma uh, discovered by Karma Chakme in like the 14th century. Uh, uh, discovering a text that's attributed to Padmasambhava of the 8th century. So the language is a little different. Uh, but it's great to read the uh, the actual source text and see what they say. And then uh, also, like we do with Chunk Pirmshe, compare that to how uh, Alan Wallace has characterized it. First, settling the body in its natural state. If you do not know how to place your body in a good posture, the genuine meditative state will not arise in your mind stream, or even if it does, it will run into problems. So the posture is important. Golly, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Uh, when the body is straight and erect, the channels are straight. When the channels are straight, the vital energies are straight. What are channels is he talking about? Is this like cable TV? So these are the inner channels of the psychic body, the, the subtle body world of Vajrayana. How many, how many channels are there? Anyone? Three? Well, there's a lot, but the three main ones? There's three main ones, and all together there's what? Uh, a lot, a lot is uh, 72,000, supposedly. When the body is straight and erect, uh, let's see, when the vital energies. Oh, just real quick. Are, are, aren't these channels related to uh, the medical art of acupuncture? Hmm. They're actually different than the, the acupuncture system, but they're definitely similar. They're definitely similar. Great question. It would be cool to see see someone uh, do a comparison. When the channels are straight, the vital energies are straight. When the vital energies remain straight or flow uh, uh Unrestrained, awareness settles in its natural state and the meditative state occurs naturally. Thus, to settle the body in its natural state in terms of physical activity, novices or beginners should completely dispense with all external mundane activities such as farming. <laughs> now, that's not much of a problem for most of us today, but I, I think if it was today, he would have said like, I don't know, computer work or email, right? Like email. Inwardly also suspends spiritual practices. Social media. Social media, such as prostrations and circumambulations. Secretly meditate firmly and unwaveringly in the appropriate, pos appropriate posture without any bodily movement at all. Did I read that right? Is, is that what that says? Without any bodily movement at all. Okay. That's because the meditative state must arise 
once the body is settled in its natural state. The actual Adhisara of the body, and I didn't also I forgot to look up the exact translation of this Sanskrit term, which I should do, is imbued with the seven physical attributes of Vairochana. The legs are placed in the Vajrasana, which is the uh, cross-legged uh, posture, with the uh, the ankles are interwoven and the feet rest on the inner thighs, ideally with the uh, soles of the feet directed upwards, if you can do that. The hands are positioned beneath the navel and the mudra of meditative equipose. Trungpa Rinpoche calls this the cosmic mudra and the profound treasury. It's like this. And the spine is straight like an arrow. The abdomen is pressed against the spine. So you bring your abdomen in against the spine. That's an unusual instruction. The neck is slightly inclined. The tip of the tongue is pressed against the palate, the upper, the roof of the mouth. And without meditating on anything, the eyes gaze fixedly in the space at the level of the tip of the nose. Now, he doesn't say how far away from the tip of the nose, but in the level of the tip of the nose. A little bit vague, but... Uh, Apparently, it seems to indicate the space right in front of your nose. Position your body faultlessly with these seven attributes. Anybody try that yet? Bring your gaze way in and look at the space real close. I urge you to try that. Yeah, it's very I, different. I tried it. You go close. You can do it. Ghost light. So if, you know, what... what they say sometimes it's like have a stick or a pebble, you know, so you can literally have like a, a practice table in front of you and then put something on that table, a glass of water, um, a stick or just some object, a candle, just something there that can give you a reference that you can use to create the the place where your your eyes are, create the focal point of your gaze and then relax there. Still not easy, but uh, creates a very different meditative experience. Uh, position your body flawlessly with these seven attributes. If you know how to establish the Adhisara naturally, the meditative state will naturally happen. Settling the speech in the natural state, um, there are also three parts. Outwardly dispensed completely with all conservation and idle, confusing speech and remain silent, close up the mouth, inwardly suspend dispersive movement and spiritual activities and remain silent. Suspend dispersive movement and spiritual activities. Secretly stop the activities of recitations and mantras. Settle your speech naturally in silence with a lute like its strings cut, this famous analogy of a stringed instrument. After you cut the strings, it just sort of go, makes a loud twang as you cut them, and then it just vibrates into emptiness. Settle the mind in its natural state, and settling the mind's natural state, there are also three parts, while keeping the body's speech as they were, or as described above. Let your mind be lucid. Let your mind be lucid. Don't make your mind lucid. Let it, interestingly. 
without engaging any thoughts concerning earlier or later deceptive appearances of the three times. Are there appearances of the three times that are not deceptive? I think it's that uh, without engaging thoughts concerning earlier or later appearances of the three times which are deceptive. Inwardly settle the mind evenly without engaging in any good thoughts, such as deity meditation. Secretly settle the mind in its natural state by letting it be just as it is, steadily, clearly, and lucidly in the space in front of you, in the mind's own mode of existence, without bringing to mind any of the mentally engaging thoughts about the view and meditation which entail mental grasping. Mental grasping is... is uh, is a sort of um, extreme terminology for uh, mental engagement of any kind. Do that for three days. <laughs> you know, it's funny, the wording... A three-day weekend is coming up. you got the Memorial Day weekend, you can do it. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I just found it interesting that the way he worded this, he said, to settle the mind, letting it be blah, 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 clearly lucidly in the space in front of you and you know, like the gaze is in the space in front of you but here it sounds like he's saying the mind is in the space in front of you which is a little contrary to our normal explorations of not finding it in space i think that's just probably just a i don't know i'm going to call it a translation issue maybe you, you never know it might have something to do with uh, what arises when you place your your gaze in the space right in front of you? Well, in that other in that other reading, we're actually supposed to put our mind in the sky, or to the right or the left, and we'll see that again here. We'll see that again, but in this well, case, that, that's I, what I, I was going to say. Is when I focus my eyes right down along my nose, it kind of collapses, and I'm. I'm not really looking anymore. I'm I'm looking inward. That's the yeah. sensation I get. Yeah, well, but don't go don't about. don't go real close. Don't be like cross-eyed. Right. But just be like eight to twelve inches in front of you, and you may find that your that your mind is like here. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I, saying. I, I get Chris's experience too when I do that. It's like it, it kind of like all of a sudden I'm a deer in the headlights almost. Of your own headlights. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a good analogy. You're the, you're the deer and the headlights. Exactly. Yeah. But it's sort of like, it's like, whoa, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a, there's a reflective quality to putting it kind of close. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard to maintain, but it's an interesting experience. So see, you know, see if you can find a, a distance where you can actually maintain, re, relax it without it being like something that is a, it makes you tense, or the eyes tense. I love the beginning of this next paragraph. Our so-called mind, <laughs> which is continually aware, busy, and recalling all kinds of things, acts as the basis of the whole of samsara and nirvana. So it is given the name foundation i.e. Alia. The root of all joy and sorrow is your own mind, so it is important, first of all, to establish this. The mind of a novice is like a wild horse. To illustrate this, to catch a wild horse, if you chase after it aggressively, it will be frightened and will not be caught. So by enticing it in various ways, 
and gently holding it, it will be caught and can be put to work. Great analogy of like, you know, if you really go after your mind, like trying to like really capture it by looking at, you know, where do thoughts come and go and so forth, or where is my mind? If if you try to capture it, doing those exercises in a way of like capturing it, you end up concretizing your mind and totally miss the point. Um, so by enticing it in various ways and gently holding it, it will be caught and can be put to work. Likewise, if this wild mind is controlled aggressively, more and more thoughts will flow out and obstacles will arise that produce numerous problems. Problems such as imbalance of the heart vital energy. Remember, uh, Alan Wallace was talking about problems with the heart center earlier. That time we went through the list of problems that arise by gently settling the mind in its natural state using various techniques, genuine quiescence or shamatha will arise in your mind stream. The actual practice of shamatha, instructions on shamatha with signs. First, cultivate your motivation by thinking may all sentient beings throughout space achieve perfect awakening. In order that this, this may happen in this very life, at this very time, and upon this very cushion, May I achieve this precious, unsurpassable state. In order to fulfill the needs of beings, however they may be trained, I shall cultivate the Mahayana Dharma. In conjunction with Guru Yoga, settle your body, speech, and mind in our natural states. Know that position in the body with the seven attributes of Vairochana serves as the basis for all meditative objects. While maintaining them, i.e. the seven attributes, place in front of you a small object such as a stick or a pebble. Gaze at it steadily without closing your eyes and at the same time place your attention upon it steadily, clearly, and lucidly without being distracted by anything else. Do not strenuously thrust your attention at it. Vividly settle your awareness simply on the unwavering meditative support without succumbing to any ordinary distractions remain clear gently release into a sense of comfort and relax a bit meanwhile rest the mind naturally unwaveringly and steadily upon that meditative support without entering without entering into the dispersal of thoughts the text transforming compassion into the past not sure what that is uh, he did not footnote it. Well, I don't know. Meditate in clarity and joy, cutting off mental dispersion during many short sessions. By having short sessions, you do not succumb to the problems of laxity and excitation. And by having many sessions, a flawless meditative state arises. So train in that way with many short sessions. When bringing the session to a close, do not arise from it quickly. Abruptly, rather with a sense of conscientiousness, um, gently integrate it with your behavior and transform this into the path. Let all your conduct be like that of a person with a concussion who is afraid of getting bumped. <laughs> and conscientiously lead your life in a meditative fashion. Conscientiousness. They're constantly, they're constantly asking us to do two seemingly contradictory things at once. Yep. <laughs> and that's what this practice, practice is like. Relax and be alert. Right. Don't bump into anything. Clarity and joy, but don't like it too much. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's the middle. Like, it's the middle path. It's yeah. The it's, you know, uh, 
<laughs> not too tight, not too loose. It's, it's the same instruction, just told different ways. Over and over, yeah. Over and over again. Yeah, not, ribshade is not too tight, not too loose. Do that for three days. Next, place your body in the proper posture and so on, like before. So on, meaning, I guess, rest, uh, rest your body, speech, and mind in a natural state. If you're a meditative object, vividly direct your attention simply, without wavering, to a white, radiant, clear, limpid bindu at the point between your eyebrows. So here we have a little tantric touch of, uh, first we had an external object of a pebble or a stick, and now we called an impure object, and now we have what's called a pure object or inner a sort of uh, symbolic objects. About the size of a white pea, it appears, but it's without an inherent nature, just like everything else. Gently release and clarity and joy and settle your mind in its natural state. Very simple instructions. Do not be interrupted by thoughts. Meditate just like that with many sessions of short duration as before. Engage in that meditation for three days or as long or as your own experience dictates. Whatever experiences occur from time to time, examine them. Next, practice the other points as previously stated, then clearly and vividly visualize your own body as hollow, like an inflated balloon. At the level of your heart, visualize a radiant bindu the size of an average butter lamp. What's the size of an average butter lamp? <laughs> so butter lamps are, yeah, they vary, right? Uh, I think that we're talking about this, like something like this, like a cubit, right? You all know what a cubit is, right? What's a cubit? <laughs> um, you've heard that that routine, right? I used uh, to know what a cubit was. It's the line that comes after that. No, uh, yeah, no, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, What's an arc? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, where the hell was I? Let's see. Um, of the nature of unified vital energy in mind. A butter lamp of the nature of unified vital energy in mind. Anyway, this is another in the list, long list, very long list of different types of shamatha practices that we don't do, but are just interesting to know about. Or vaguely interesting. Um, its color is blue and clear, and, and its feel is hot. It does not touch the back, and it does not touch the chest. In other words, it's in the middle of the body. Imagine it at the position of the heart instantly. Direct your consciousness at that. That's an interesting instruction. Instantly direct your consciousness at that. Meaning, do not like gradually try to create it and try to like figure out where it is, but just flash on it like a, like a fish leaping from water. Clearly and joyfully cut off mental dispersion. When there is distraction, visualize the meditative object. If your consciousness becomes agitated and the meditative object is not maintained, the element of the vital energy has become dominant. So, eat nutritious food, release the meditative object a little bit and relax. Meanwhile, moment by moment, maintain mindfulness 
in conscientiousness without being distracted toward ordinary things. On the whole, releasing is most important. So naturally release your mind and see that there is simply no wavering. What is releasing your mind? Letting go of object. Letting go of object. Anyone else? Yeah. I'm still kind of curious about the instruction to have a snack. <laughs> Eat something nutritious. You have a power <laughs> bar or something, or protein drink, or yogurt. Like during don't the practice. Don't go with the blue light before you eat. During the, <laughs> during, right. Yeah, during the practice. I think that's interesting. Uh, uh, but, yeah, I, release, releasing the mind... When I hear that, I just think of let go of, of um, anything that I'm focused on. Yeah, that's sort of key, like learning, learning what releasing the mind is in a way that's not like flopping, right? As you said earlier, it's like, uh, you know, there's the extremes, is flopping, and the other extreme is holding the mind, and releasing the mind means letting it be in its natural state without losing clarity and precision. It, it's like it's just uh, don't grasp at anything. Don't grasp any object. That's right. No, no. Yeah, grasp. I mean that's really content. Yeah, content. But but while maintaining clarity, right? Uh, let's see. Meanwhile, moment by moment, maintain. Oh, I read that. On the whole, releasing is most important. Okay, moreover, if depression or sadness arises, your consciousness has become distorted. So meditate on the disadvantages of samsara, the difficulty of obtaining a human life of leisure and endowment and impermanence, and cultivate reverence and devotion for your spiritual mentor or your lama. So these are the traditional uh, antidotes to uh, depression or sadness that arises. What's the more common uh, contemporary antidote for them that's very popular these days? You mean medications? <laughs> no, I didn't mean medications. Raise the gauge. <laughs> it starts with a G. I'm thinking like cognitive a, therapy, like it's not. There, there was a, Prozac, what do you mean? Prozac. There was a, a famous rock band that had this word in it. Gee. Is it uh, gratitude? There you go. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful oh. you said that. <laughs> <laughs> gratitude is very big these days, right? Take satisfaction thinking, now I have obtained a human life of leisure and endowment. Where's that leisure, huh? <laughs> um, I've met with the precious teachings and I've come upon such a profound path. Consider if I do not strive now, I shall slip up and I hate to think what would follow after that. Wasting this precious life. Cultivate enthusiasm and delight. Those who do so will find that quiescence arises in their mind stream. If it does not arise in that way, vividly imagine the space in front of the body of Vajrasattva, about one hand span in length. How big is a hand span? <laughs> as big as your hand. <laughs> 
is that like a horse horses are measured in hands right what's an average like stallion how many hands is a stallion they're like 15 hands. Yeah. 15? 15, 15, 15 like to 20. Big ones, like 24. 15, 18, right? I think, came to my mind. Okay. Depends on whose hands, but okay. One of those things. Um, although he appears, he's without an inherent nature, like everything else, like a polished crystal. He's white, clear, and of the nature of light. Focus your awareness at his heart and visualize clearly and vividly uh, with many short sessions as before regarding this, the sutra synthesizing the contemplations of the Buddha, sounds like a neat sutra, says there are inexpressible benefits simply from recalling Vajrasattva. Alternatively, focus your awareness space in front of you in the body of Bhagawan, Bhagawan, the Bhagawan, Shakyamuni, shimmering with golden light. The King of Samadhi Sutra says that there are also incalculable benefits in this meditative object, or many choices here for um, depression, sadness, and if uh, quiescence doesn't arise. You may lucidly direct your attention simply without wavering in the space in front of you on the white syllable Hri with Visarga. That would require knowing what the syllable Hri looks like in Tibetan. At the heart of clear, shimmering white Arya Avalokiteshwar the Bodhisattva of compassion, the Sutra of Basket Weaving. I thought that was uh, like a major at Hampshire College, Basket Weaving, but apparently it's based on the Sutra by the Buddha called the Sutra Basket Weaving. <laughs> That's terrible. It says that this too has incalculable benefits. How a terrible karma I get from making these jokes. With those meditative objects, thoughts will evenly decrease. At first, thoughts will increase. Wait, thoughts will decrease. At first, they'll increase, and there'll be more coming and going excitation. This is a sign that the meditative state has begun to arise. At, this, at that time, you become disgruntled with the meditation that succumbed to lassitude. There's also danger. You may give up thinking the meditation isn't coming along for me. Thoughts in the meditation have just gotten more and more coarse. The, the waterfall stage, without getting frustrated, gently engage in implying the instructions. That increase of thoughts is the beginning of meditation. Previously, even though thoughts were spinning on unceasingly, there was no century of mindfulness, so they naturally flowed out. As their increases detected by the century of mindfulness, they are recognized. This is a desirable sign. In other words, when you when you know you go to introductory meditation sessions, or when you give meditation instruction to groups and People are like, oh, that was great. I was just like thought free. I don't know what, what you're talking about labeling thoughts. I didn't have any thoughts. <laughs> uh, you know, they're just not able to notice them really. This is a desirable sign that the meditative state is arising. So gently recognize the thoughts. Even if you impede them, they will not stop without flowing after, following after them, focus on the meditative object. By so doing, thoughts will become more and more subtle, and then they will decrease in number. Even though you're meditating, hand is four inches, thank you. Oops. Um, even though you're meditating on the object before, 
before if detrimental habitual thoughts suddenly pop up, focus right on that compulsive ideation as your meditative support. Did he just say meditate on thoughts as your object? Yeah, that's common practice also in the Mahamudra tradition is using thoughts as the object of meditation. Whether or whatever detrimental habitual propensities of attachment and hatred arise, recognize them and in a relaxed way release the mind right upon them. So what is releasing the mind upon habitual propensities mean? Releasing the mind. So earlier Kevin succinctly said releasing the mind means letting go of any clinging, any grasping at content. So you would let go of the grasping of content of the mind onto the habitual propensities. Interesting phrase, interesting description. Gotta, gotta be there, had to be there. Each time a thought arises, recognize it immediately, release it so that it naturally vanishes. If two thoughts arise, recognize them. Do not follow after anything that appears, but let it arise and be released. At times, focus on the meditative object, and at times, let thoughts arise and vanish. But not fabricating anything in their wake, release, re relax rather, and release. By alternatively, by alternately rather, practicing like that, the chain of compulsive ideation will become disconnected, and thoughts will become fragmented. Thus, detrimental thoughts will become fewer and fewer, and fine stability will arise. Meditated in that way for three days. Whereas your experience this dictates if genuine quiescence with those objects arise in your mind stream, train in their awareness. On the whole, since it is difficult to subdue this harmful habituation to latent propensity, it is important to use numerous methods to settle the mind in its natural state. Interestingly, we now use the exact opposite logic of use one way. Don't use multiple ways. Use one way over and over and over again. Which, which is actually another subtle technique. It's that by using one way, we're cultivating, what is it? It starts with a B. Boredom. Boredom. One of the most effective antidotes to obsessive compulsive thinking. Uh, let's see, training in the vital energies, maintaining the body and the posture, bearing the seven attributes of Vairochana, let the spine be erect and straight and press the hands against the ground. Don't try this at home. <laughs> While so doing, completely exhale three times, once through the right nostril, once through the left, and once from the middle nostril. Simultaneously imagine that sins whatever they are, and obscurations are purified and that the sins are discharged from your nostrils in the form of scorpions, you may want to use a tissue, and are then incinerated in the roaring flames of the fire of primordial wisdom in the space in front of you. Wow. This expels the toxins of the vital energies. Then together with your inhalation while swallowing your saliva just once, scrunch down beneath the navel. No idea what that means. These are secret tantric practices. Without thinking of any meditative object, let your awareness rest your awareness and clarity. When you can do so, no more completely exhale. So another uh, 
breath holding practice. Do that for three days. And so on. So now we have the Vajra recitation of Om Ahom, similar practice. Let's skipping the detail on that. Then on page 270, in that way, sustain your attention. Um, let's see, each day there are 21,600 movements of the vital energy. 21,600 breaths per day. Anybody figure out the math on that? How many breaths per minute that is? Just curious. I did. Uh, let's see. All this has been, that has been discussed thus far concerns the achievement of shamatha with signs. Training in shamatha without signs. Position your bodies before them while steadily gazing into the space in front of you without meditating on anything. Steadily concentrate your awareness without wavering. How can you concentrate your awareness if there's nothing to concentrate upon? Another one of those uh, contradictory instructions. Increase the stability and then relax again. Occasionally check out what is that consciousness that's concentrating? Steadily concentrate it again and then check it out again. Do that in an alternating fashion, even if there are problems with lex, lexity, uh, laxity and lethargy, that will dispel them. And all your activities rely upon unwavering mindfulness. Do that for one day. Increase the stability, increase the concentration, then relax again. Then position your bodies before cast your gaze downward. Gently release your mind without having anything on which to meditate. Gently release both your body and mind into their natural state, having nothing on which to meditate without any moderation, sorry, modification or adulteration. Place your attention simply without wavering in its own natural state, its natural limpidity, its own character, just as it is. Remain in clarity and rest the mind so that it becomes loose and free. Alternate between observing who is concentrating inwardly and who is releasing. If it is the mind, ask, what is that very agent that releases the mind and concentrates the mind? Steadily observe yourself and then release again. By so doing, fine stability will arise. You may even identify awareness. That same phrase that Larry Blinkba used, do that too for one day. So we see again in Shamatha using this these practices that are also used in Vipassana, of looking for the agent. Then do as before, now alternately concentrate your consciousness tightly, wholly concentrating it without wavering, then gently release it, evenly resting it in openness, again concentrate and again release. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Did anybody like think that's an interestingly familiar sounding technique? How would you describe our technique? You focus on the out breath and then you release on the in breath. <clears throat> Is this not the same thing? Looks pretty similar, doesn't it? I guess it depends on how long he's talking about concentrating <clears throat> like we're doing it like if you're saying each cycle you're doing back and forth whereas you could also say concentrate for you know many cycles or whatever yeah yeah or for three days or for and three days release, or and then release for three days. whatever yeah let's see anyway at times directly uh, steadily direct your gaze into the sky 
as Rob said earlier, uh, steadily focus your awareness with the desire to be without anything on which to meditate. <laughs> meditate intently on having nothing to meditate upon. Relax again. Don't take me too seriously. Relax. At times, steadily, unwaveringly direct your awareness into the space on your right. At times, direct it to the left and at times, direct it downward. Being aware of the space on, on various sides of you. Interesting practice. During each session, rotate the gaze around in those directions. Occasionally inquire, what is that awareness of the one who's focusing the interest? Let the awareness itself steadily observe itself. At times, let your mind come to rest in the center of your heart and leave, and evenly leave it there. At times, evenly focus it in the expanse of the sky and leave it there. Earlier, I don't know, at some point I thought he said there is no location for the mind, and now we're leaving our mind in various places. Got to remember to take it before we go. Thus, by shifting the gaze in various alternating ways, the mind settles in its natural state. As an indication of this, if awareness remains evenly, lucidly, and steadily wherever it's placed, shamatha has arisen. If awareness becomes muddled and unmindful, that is the problem of laxity or dimness, so to clear it up, inspire it and shift your gaze. If it becomes distracted and excited, it's important that you lower your gaze and release your awareness. If samadhi arises in which there is nothing of which you can say this is meditation and this is conceptualization, this is the problem of oblivion. Interesting. So meditate with the alternating concentration and release and recognize who is meditating. So He's not into the oblivion meditation. There's nothing of which you can say this is meditation and this is conceptualization. It almost sounded good, right? And then that's the oblivion. Recognize the flaws of shamatha and eliminate them right away. Flawless shamatha is like an oil lamp that is unmoved by the wind. Wherever the awareness is placed, it is unwaveringly present. Awareness is vividly clear without... Uh, being sullied by laxity, lethargy, and dimness, wherever the awareness is directed, it's steady and sharply pointed. Did you know that your awareness is sharply pointed? Uh, unmoved by adventitious thoughts, it is straight. Thus, a flawless meditative state arises in one's mind stream. And until this happens, it's important that the mind is settled in its natural state without genuine shamatha arising in one's mind stream. Even if awareness is pointed out, it becomes nothing more than an object of intellectual understanding. He's talking about the pointing out of the nature of the mind transmission. That if you don't have stable shamatha, it remains an intellectual understanding. One is left simply giving lip service to the view. And there's the danger that one may succumb to dogmatism. Oh my God. Thus, the root of all meditative states depends upon this. For this reason, do not be introduced to awareness too soon, but practice until there occurs a fine experience of stability. Thus, the uh, technique of making people practice shamatha for many years before receiving transmission. Up to this point, the instructions have concerned the practice of shamatha with and without signs. Samaya. Samaya is the tantric concept that uh, means uh, the vow of commitment or commitment to uh, the view. The instructions 
essential instructions of the Mahasiddha Maitripa. This is fairly short. So there are three types of shamatha with signs focused on conceptualization and shamatha that's settled in non-conceptualization. I'm reading the italics. Shamatha that depends on signs, and I'm regularly replacing the word quiescence with shamatha. And the first, there are two types, maintaining the attention outwards and maintaining the attention inwards. Maintaining the attention outwards has two types, impure and pure. So remember, there's three types, shamatha with signs, shamatha on concept, and shamatha non-concept. The first one, shamatha on signs, has outward and inward, and outward has impure and pure and pure, <clears throat> with the posture of seven attributes. Adopt the gaze. <laughs> Maintain your attention without distraction upon a pillar. I don't know how many pillars these days. A pot, a stick, or a pebble, together with the posture and the gaze. Do this without indulging in distraction elsewhere and without the dispersion of conceptualization. While doing so, settle in relaxation. Moreover, reflex it, excitement arise, recognize whether the attention is being maintained above, below, to the right, or to the left. He doesn't say move it around, he just says recognize, interestingly. Pure outward attention. So first we had inward, impure outward attention. Now we have pure outward attention. The pure type maintaining the attention upon the jina's body. Jina means conquer is another epithet of the Buddha. In front of you place an image of Lord Amitabha, the Buddha of the Western realm. If you don't have one, imagine it. These days it's very easy to locate these. And... Uh, Let's see. Then he says, the next paragraph in, in the practice of focusing on the Buddha's body placed before you a statue or some other representation. But it, I already told you I didn't have one. Anyway, skipping to the next page. Gaze upon the image for a while. At page 273 of the source book. Then, without looking at it, create a mental image of it. So you, you look at it with your eyes open, close your eyes, create the mental image. Scan the mental image from top to bottom, examining the details from the top of the head to the face and so on to the bottom of the body. This is instruction and in how to visualize for those of you that do visualization practice or for when you get there. Visualization practice is a shamatha practice. Then scan upwards. There are great benefits in attending to the Buddha's body, etc. Uh, you could visualize, skipping a couple of sentences, you could visualize the Buddha stupendously large like a galaxy, or you could imagine it being microscopic. You could imagine it being single or multiple. The point of the training is to master this untamed mind. So flexibility of mental visualization strength is the practice of shamatha when we use visualization for shamatha. So sh uh, visualizing different things, huge... The meditative object is huge, the field of refuge is huge or tiny, many or one, and so forth. At the end of the session, whatever the size of the image, you can gradually shrink it down to a single point and then allow that point itself to vanish into nothing, the dissolution. Everything shrinks into one point and then nothing, and then dwell on that nothingness for a while. 
The real point of all this is to bring about inner balance and serenity of their mind. That is the crux of the biscuit. It's important not to get into a great deal of conceptualization as to whether this is a Mahayana or Hinayana practice or what sect it might be from. None of this is necessary. Don't be too clever. Just keep it simple, stupid, and train the mind in this way, knowing that the real point is inner serenity, maintaining shamatha in the mind. If you make it too complicated, you simply create unnecessary obstacles for yourself in the practice of dharma. Uh, he gives another way of doing this. I'll skip that. Maintaining the intention inwards has two types, impure and pure. Uh, uh, maintain the intention upon an impure bindu. Bindu is a dot. Maintain your attention on a white bindu the size of a pea emitting rays of light upon a lotus moon disk at your heart. And so forth. He says these are practical instructions on transforming ideation into the path without abandoning it. Without abandoning it. Without abandoning ideation, we bring it onto the path. We use thoughts as part of our path. Shamatha, that is of the nature of the spiritual path, transforms ideation into the path, and attention is maintained by focusing on the ideation of the path, thoughts of the path. These are the practical instructions. And try to, <clears throat> instead of trying to stifle your thoughts in this practice, you transform them into the very path itself. The thought that's being transformed into the path is the visualization of the white bindu. So you bring thoughts into the white bindu. In this case, in, uh, pure inward attention. Uh, place a Buddha inside your body and meditate on that. Uh, shamatha, that is, is, uh, that is shamatha dependent upon signs. Now we have shamatha focused on conceptualization. Shamatha in which the attention is focused on conceptualization <clears throat> in relation to the excessive proliferation of conceptualization, including such afflictions as the five or three poisons, thoughts that revolve in duality, thoughts such as those of the ten virtues. So all these virtuous things. Whatever thoughts arise, steadily and not conceptually observe their nature. By doing so, they are calmed and non-grasping. So, shamatha practice focusing on the nature of thoughts. By doing so, they're calmed and non-grasping. Awareness vividly arises clear and empty with no object of grasping, and it is sustained in the nature of self-liberation in which it recognizes itself, it being awareness. Again, direct the mind to whatever thoughts arise without acceptance or rejection, you will recognize your own nature. It seems to, uh, the way Alan Wallace describes this is that your own nature is the Ali Vishnana. And uh, when he says the primordial awareness, then that's beyond your own nature. Thus implement the practical instructions on transforming ideation into the path. And finally, shamatha that is settled in uh, non-conceptualization. The ultimate shamatha maintaining the attention upon non-conceptualization with the seven points of uh, Vairochana, sit in a soft cushion in a solitary darkened room. I've never seen that instruction before. Vacantly direct the eyes into the intervening vacuity 
intervening between oneself and the wall or anything else in the room, I guess. See that the three conceptualizations, i.e. of past, present, and future, as well as good, bad, and neutral thoughts together with causes and so forth, are completely cut off. Bring no thoughts to mind. Let the mind, like a cloudless sky, be clear, empty, and evenly devoid of grasping, and settle it in utter emptiness. By doing so, you will experience the shamatha of joy, clarity, and non-conceptuality. Examine whether or not attachment, hatred, clinging, grasping, laxity, excitation enter into that and recognize the difference between vices and virtues. Now, we read this. I realize now that uh, I'm pretty sure this was in the article of Shamatha Vipassana in the Dzogchen tradition. So I'm not going to read this one again. It turns out it was in, incorporated in there fully. I did not realize that before. But we did have one other little text that I circulated that's not wasn't in the source book. I forgot to put it in the source book. Or didn't think of it. So uh, the folks have that. It's called Taking the Mind as the Path, which is the namesake of the course. Maybe I'll screen share it. Let's see. No. Close. All tabs. Oh, I think it's called Part One from the Sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra. It was circulated for this class. So here we go. Let's see, make that a little bigger. How's that? From the from Heart of the Great Perfection, Dujum Lingpa's Visions of the Great Perfection, Volume One. So this is a, a package in a three-volume set that's produced by Wisdom Publications. From the matrix of pure appearances and primordial consciousness, the quintessence of the great mystery of the Mantravana, the primordially pure absolute space of Samantabhadri, the female, the spontaneously actualized treasury of the great perfection. That's the subtitle to the text, The Sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra. Dedication to the Supreme Omnipresent Lord of all the Buddha's families and mandalas to the Sukha to Garba I bow with unwavering faith. In the equality of samsara nirvana in the path of the pervasive emptiness of pristine space, I, the great yogin of the Dharmakaya, free of conceptual elaboration, arose as an apparitional display of primordial consciousness. The ground Dharmakaya, the Sugata Garbha, free of conceptual elaboration, imbued with the three doors of liberation. Anyone remember the three doors of liberation? MB? Anybody? Cynthia? Well, three what? doors of liberation. Door number one, two, and three. Oh, goodness. Signlessness. Um, yeah. yeah. Wishlessness. Two, yeah, wishlessness. all right. Yeah, yeah. And what's the first one? Um... There's sort of an order to them. Yeah. It's not much to it, the first one. Um, nothingness, whatever it is. Yeah. Thank, thank you. 
Emptiness, emptiness, emptiness signlessness, yeah. and <laughs> vicelessness is primordially enlightened as spontaneously actualized displays of the union of the three kayas in absolute space. The teacher and her circle of disciples appears, their minds indivisible. This arose as the splendor of my fine karma prayers and merit and that of some individuals with fortune equal to my own. Those people who lack the karmic momentum of this path will get no more from this than from a drawing of food and wealth. The space treasury of ultimate reality is granted as an inheritance to people of good fortune. Hopefully that's us. So this is the, the uh, quite an uh, interesting beginning to this text. Part one, taking the impure mind as the path for the satisfaction of the apparitional display of her circle of disciples. The Supreme Teacher, Samantha Bhadra, omnipresent Lord Vajra, declared the apparitional display of the circle of disciples. Listen. To, uh, he declared, listen to his circle of disciples who are the non-dual display of his own creative power. He, he emanated his uh, disciples, his retinue, and then he, he was ta he's uh, talking to them, yelling at them. He examined the body, speech, and mind, and among them recognized the one that is primary as the all-creating sovereign. So we haven't got, really spent time on this topic, but all of these Dzogchen texts start with this first phase of looking at what's the most important thing in our world, in our life, for our happiness. Is it the body? Is it the speech? Or is it the mind? And these days, a lot of people view the body as most important. People that are uh, materialists say there is no mind. So everything is body. And then uh, a lot of people are into like body practices and meditations and things like that. And Dzogchen says, well, yeah, the body is an important support for the mind, but it's that's its role, a support for the mind. And the primary thing in our experience is the mind. And so it's called the all-creating creating sovereign is the mind. The shape and color of the all-creating sovereign, as well as its origin, location, and destination, are objectless openness hard to find that. This is the spontaneous actualization of the essential nature of the path of cutting through. Trekcha. So there's an affiliation of uh, this practice with Trekcha. Not finding the location, origin, and so forth of the mind. Which was just uh, used as a shamatha practice. Simultaneous individuals enter the path with no basis and no root. So there's three types of individuals, very highly advanced, called simultaneous. As soon as they hear, they lib they're liberated simultaneously. As soon as they're introduced to the teachings, to the Dharma, to the reality, to reality. Others, intermediate students, should come to rest in space astronauts and within three weeks they will certainly awaken and enter the path. Now entering the path is not an introductory phase. It's a, f a phrase that indicates entering the path of steam, the third of the five paths mm -hmm. in uh, enlightenment. In the Theravon tradition it's called a stream enter. 
those of the class with inferior faculties, me, maybe some of you, identify stillness and movement. So us normal people, first identify stillness and movement. Identify when your mind is calm, or that aspect of mind that's calm and that aspect of mind that moves, i.e. thoughts, emotions, ideation of all kind i.e. through meditation practice as we do by taking the mind as the path they are led to the absolute space of pristine awareness so taking the mind as the path is identifying stillness and movement first is single pointed unification of the two stillness and movement then by resting without observing its natural power manifests by resting in that state of the unification of stillness and movement, its natural power manifests without observing, without making it a dualistic situation. Abide loosely, without mindfulness, in a vacuous, wide-open clarity. So here we have the Dzogchen presentation of the stages of mindfulness. I think we saw this somewhere else recently where... There's this scheme of four types of mindfulness that's very different from the four foundations of mindfulness, but it goes from like mindfulness with effort to uh, sort of like, a, I can't remember the, the other, it was uh, mindfulness without object and then effortless mindfulness and beyond mindfulness, something like that, you know, a typical Vajrayana scheme that is sort of like contradictory. But this is a presentation of these four stages. Abide loosely without mindfulness, in a vacuous, wide-open clarity, and resting in a luminous vacuity is called self-illuminating mindfulness. So the four stages of mindfulness. For everyone, the various experiences of bliss, vacuity, and luminosity become objects of craving and attachment, those three aspects of the substrate consciousness. The meditative experiences of illness and discomfort in the body, speech, and mind sporadically arise over time. Once you genuinely enter the path, every all the different experiences of illness and discomfort that arise are, are part of the path. Whenever you proudly hope for good things and cling to them or fear bad things and reify inflictors of harm, and reify inflictors of harm, make the objects or the causes of harm into real things. Reify inflictors of harm. Whenever you do that, you've stumbled upon a dangerous juncture that can lead you astray. You've taken good and bad as real. The general synthesis, that is the sole vital point of the path, is ascertaining all experiences of pleasure, pain, and indifference as false impressions of unreal meditative experience. So once you genuinely commit yourself to the path, everything that arises, good, bad, and indifference, is just the play of the mind. By releasing them, whatever occurs, without blocking or embracing them, don't make a big deal out of anything, good or bad. You bring an end to deviations and losses. And this is the one eye of wisdom. The one eye of wisdom, the single eye of wisdom. Meaning, meaning this is the essence of wisdom. There is no other eye of wisdom. Those who have become distant from sublime spiritual mentors should cherish the five topics as the sublimity of the path. 
Uh, I'm not sure quite what the five topics are exactly here. If you strive too hard in practicing single-pointedness, the power of your mind will decline. And with stagnant mindfulness, although your body is human, your mind becomes that of an animal. Some people may stray into delirium, so devote yourself to a spiritual mentor without ever being separated from her. In short, even if you strive diligently in this phase of these practices for a long time, taking the mind as the path does not bring you even a hair's breadth closer to the paths of liberation and omniscience. And your yeah. life will certainly have been spent in vain. So understand this, you fortunate people. Is there a mistake there? In short, even if you strive diligently in this phase for a long time, taking the mind as the path does not bring you. I'll have to look into it. <laughs> so why, why no are mind? we doing all this? <laughs> it could be understood as Cynthia said, right? Isn't he saying, like, don't overdo it? Like, the overdoing turns you into an animal. Um, the try too hard. Don't try too hard. Yeah, it could be. It could be. I'll, I'll have to check on that. So whoever is taking notes on all the little things that I said I would check on, if you could send them to me, that list to me, that would be really helpful. Any comments or questions or concerns? Finally, sorry that we went so far over. Yeah, what time? Yeah, what time is it? So let's uh, dedicate and close. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the regions wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Be well. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Thanks, Bye, guys. Neil. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Take care.